It's so good to be able to be together, isn't it? I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. The famous refrain of Philippians 3 verse 14. It is in that placement that we certainly are admonished to press onward, to press forward. Ever realizing, of course, the dangers offered to us by the surroundings of this world. Surely as we reflect on all that, how blessed we are to be able to assemble and to gather with the freedom of this moment to give a portion of time to study the blessed Word of God. The songs that we've sung tonight, the prayer in which we've engaged, all these things are, of course, approved aspects of worship, and just so it is that we also can open the Bible. Please be opening to the book of 2 John, if you would. They're nestled near the end of the New Testament, and we'll use that book as the basis for our lesson tonight. The little one-chapter book of 2 John. Speaking of the fact that it's one chapter, of course, that does make it one of the shortest of the books in the Bible. But that brevity does not by any means assert that there isn't much to be learned. In fact, all of the Word of God's inspired. All of it has salient and powerful lessons, and so it is with this little book of 2 John. You'll notice on that opening slide, I've just asked you to contemplate very, very briefly the following. The books of 2nd and 3rd John, it seems, give us a glimpse, a glimpse of what it was like to be a Christian in the church in the first century. And as we look upon these books and we appreciate the kind of influences that they faced and the admonishment given to them by the inspired writers, how easy it is to transfer those things to us today and to learn those valiant lessons and to use them just as the Holy Spirit intended Tonight, as we look at this little book of 2 John, I've tried to divide the lesson into several sections. The first one is this one, some comments about the book. This little book of 2 John, I thought these comments might be helpful to us as we think about the lessons that we're going to extract in the remainder of the lesson tonight. Perhaps the word brief is an understatement. It only has 13 verses. It likely would be true any of us could sit down and read the whole book of 2 John probably in about a minute, maybe a minute and a half. The book is very short, very to the point, but you'll notice some of these comments immediately challenge us as follows. John wrote it. Now, which John? It was the Apostle John, that same one who authored a few other New Testament books, John wrote the gospel according to John. He also wrote the book of 1 John. He also, in addition to this one, wrote 3 John and finally the Revelation. Those five New Testament books make him the second most prolific New Testament author behind the Apostle Paul. In regard to those comments about John, we do remember that, of course, he was favored to be in that inner circle so often, Peter and James and John were blessed to witness some of the grandest of the Lord's activities. Weren't they the ones there when he raised Jairus' daughter? Weren't they there on the Mount of Transfiguration? So John was privileged to see many, many things. That aged apostle, of course, was also a stalwart defender of the truth. And it was in books like this one that he encouraged that truthful way and walk of life. In addition to that, would we also note this? Who is it that received this book? Quite often as we read the New Testament books, we always take a great deal of interest in who received it. 
when Paul wrote to Timothy in the books of 1st and 2nd Timothy. We learn much about Timothy through those books. When he wrote to Titus in the book of Titus, we learn much about him as well. Would you notice with me verse 1 of this book, and let's notice to whom it's written. 2nd John, verse number 1. The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all they that have known the truth. We notice that all that is informed to you and to me is that the recipient of this book is referenced as follows, unto the elect lady and her children. There has been a great deal of discussion through the ages about exactly who this was. And some have even asserted that maybe that's a figurative description about a particular congregation. Maybe in other words, John wrote a church and yet called them or referred to that congregation as the elect lady. I do not believe that's a correct assertion. As you read through the book with me, it seems as though John very much had in mind a specific woman, a, a lady, if he plays a Christian, who was a member of the Lord's body there in the first century. As such, you might note this with me. The elect lady is the way in which it's referenced. You might take note that as we appreciate the Greek word that appears behind that reference, it's the word kyria. K-Y-R-I-A. It seems uh, thus that that was the proper name, if you please, of a woman who lived in the first century. Her name was Kyria. And as such, John addressed this letter to her and to her children. And we also appreciate that what great and powerful reflections he made to her. For instance, note the following. I would ask you to notice later on in the book, verse number 4. I rejoiced greatly that I found of thy children. If that were a reference to the whole congregation, it's a bit unclear as to what the children would mean. But not only that, look at how the book closes in verse 13. The children of thy elect sister. If again that is a figurative representation of an entire congregation, then who would the sister be? And who would be the children of the sister? Because they too seemingly are referenced. All of that set aside, it seems as if John had clearly in mind a lady. Her name was Kyria. She was a faithful Christian and she was blessed with children. And they too were known in regard to their walk in the truth. Can't you and I immediately respect that woman very highly? Because you and I would have that same desire for ourselves, wouldn't we? We want to walk in the truth and we want our physical children to do the same. Not only those thoughts... But did, did you note with me as we reflect on this book that John had many things to say to this lady? In fact, notice also verse 12. Having many things to write unto you, I would not write with paper and ink, but I trust to come unto you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. John had a desire to share many things with Kyria. He wanted to her, her faith to be strengthened and emboldened, but he asserted that I don't want to bring it by way of paper and ink. Paul, or rather, John hoped to personally visit with her, to visit in that area and share face to face the great integrity of the gospel message. No wonder in light of those things, we again remark very powerfully about that list of matters that John wanted to encourage her with. 
maybe those things lead us to the bottom of that slide. This letter in its 13 verses was to be a source of joy for her. Isn't it still grand how you and I can receive such joy from the Word of God? How that perhaps on occasions when we don't feel the best as we'd like and yet maybe despite the fact we're a little depressed or at least we're a little bit on the side of gloominess, we read the Word of God. We're challenged and we in fact by virtue of that recognize that we are loved by God and that He did send His Son to die for us. And as a result of that great gospel message, we have every right to leave that consideration feeling far better than when we came. This message was to be a source of joy for Kyria. Have you ever wondered how she received it? When she first read this letter that John wrote to her, the excitement maybe that filled her heart? Tonight we're going to take a journey through the book of 2 John, looking at a few of the major themes and topics that John had to share with her. As we close this opening slide, we can appreciate truly that our joy could also be a heightened thing as we study this book together. A few terms I've chosen out of the book, some of which occur very frequently, but here's the first one. I would invite you to read with me the first few verses of this book and see if as I read it there's not a word that appears over and over again. One cannot miss the fact that John emphasized this as he started the book. The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all they that have known the truth, for the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever. Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father in truth and love." I rejoiced greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth as we have received a commandment from the Father. That's the reading of the first four verses. And it was probably rather easy to observe the word that, that I tried to at least emphasize as we noted it together. The word that occurs so often through those verses is the word truth. In fact, if you keep account of it, that word occurs five times in the first four verses. Five times in the first four verses. It isn't difficult to appreciate that one of the initial matters of great significance that John wished for Kyra to appreciate was truth. Could you and I not, not appreciate that there hadn't been anything to change concerning that important matter? Thus, let's discuss it somewhat more carefully. One of the first things that you and I might note is the very thing John highlights. For instance, verse number 2. For the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever. Clear, clearly it's easy to see then that John highlighted to this elect lady that there is something known as truth that exists. Notice he says it dwells among us. In fact, to borrow his special language, he says it dwells in us. This truth is not some ethereal, distant, abstract concoction. It dwells in us. And John did not want this elected lady to miss that point. It is still the case that truth is an existent thing. It would seem to me that one of the most common portrayals that Satan makes is in a strong attempt to convince individuals that there is no truth. 
that truth is nothing more than a relative decision on the part of each individual. That's one of the best lies he's ever told. He is the father of lies, isn't he? John 8, verse 44. He is known as the great deceiver, Revelation 12, verse 9. And so it is that truth is not left on a relative basis if it exists at all. John says it dwells in us. You'll notice along that thought, notice what immediately follows that. If truth exists and it exists in us, look at what else John says. Verse number 1, it says, Whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all they that have known the truth. Did you note the verb with me? I suppose it's true that throughout a number of centuries, there has been a group of individuals who've labeled themselves as agnostic. A somewhat fancy word. It just simply means, at least in their mind, there is not enough evidence to know whether there's any truth. And hence they say, since I don't have sufficient evidence, all I can say is I don't know. John didn't feel that way. John said, verse 1, that have known the truth. Not only does the truth exist, it can be known. Aren't we thankful for that? Wouldn't it be miserable to sojourn through life and never be certain of anything that's right or not right before God? Wouldn't it be awful to close one's eyes as one approaches death, not knowing if things are well with your soul? My friends, we can know. The truth can be known. Not only does it exist, but you and I can know it so well. Not only that, as you think about that truth, how often have we had in mind other New Testament writers that pointed us to the appreciation of that fact? In Romans chapter 1, after that tremendous anthem in which Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. After making a profound declaration like that, Paul said, Verse 20, for the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. That's very pointed, isn't it? No one on the day of judgment will have any reason to say there wasn't enough evidence to know whether there's a God or not. In fact, they will recoil and abject disbelief in and of themselves for their own foolishness for having ever thought such a thing. It is the case truth can be known. As you and I look at that, you'll notice what else might be asserted about this truth. Please note verse 3 with me. John says it like this. Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father. But now note the last four words of the verse with me. He's just made mention of grace and truth, and he's just made mention, of course, of the nature of the love of God. But now he says, in truth and love, the thoroughfare of appreciation of the grace of God, the understanding of that marvelous matter of His mercy, it all comes linked inextricably to the truth. Without the truth, you'd never know anything about God's grace. Without the truth, you'd never know anything about His mercy or His love. But it's because of that truth that we understand fully about His mercy and about His peace and, of course, about His grace. I believe we're gaining a remarkable appreciation about the significance of the truth so far. 
But as we look even further, you'll notice the New Testament certainly has so much to say about the blessing that comes with that truth. In Ephesians 1 verse 3, we recognize, of course, that all spiritual blessings are in Christ. We also notice in John 1.17 and John 14.6 where the Lord Himself made statements like this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So when you and I have a desire to appreciate truth, and surely we do, that truth is found with the teachings, the doctrine, and the presentation of Jesus Christ. Again, aren't we thankful for that? John had all of that in mind as he wrote to Kyria, encouraging her to appreciate the truth, to understand its significance, and to live in harmony with it. When you think about that aspect of truth, in quick matter, note some of the initial ways that the New Testament also highlights these things. That truth is, is expressed in the gospel. Colossians 1 verse 5. When you and I study the gospel and we appreciate the gospel, that is the truth of God expressed for you and me today in this dispensation. Not only that, in 2 John verse number 1, we notice again that word love, whom I love in the truth. You and I know we're a part of a Christian family here at the Pippin Church of Christ. And we love our Christian family and we're thankful unto God for the faithfulness expressed here and the liveliness with which we adhere to that truth of God. Isn't it still interesting? John loved Kyria in the truth. Brothers and sisters in Christ. You and I also appreciate that love of the brethren, don't we? We often call that brotherly love as it's expressed in 2 Peter 1 verses 5 and 6. That love of the brethren leads us to notice verse number 4. Verse number 4. I think we ought to read that one again. I rejoiced greatly. Did you notice John rejoiced as he became aware of some information? What was it that brought John to rejoicing? I rejoiced greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth. John was very happy when he learned apparently Kyrie was old enough to have children who were old enough themselves to obey the gospel. And John was very excited, happy when they had made that decision. Aren't you and I today still excitedly happy when a young person or, yea, anybody makes that decision to be immersed into Christ? We rejoice and celebrate with that person's parents or that person as well. John rejoiced when Kyrie's children were walking in the truth. That particular verse holds a great deal of significance for Denise, certainly for me as well, I know for many of you alike, as you appreciate what that indicates about where John's heart was, thankful for the faithfulness expressed by Kyrie's children. You and I today can still be so thankful when a young person who due to influence and upbringing makes a decision to obey the blessed gospel of Jesus Christ. With all of that said, as some comments on this particular page, why don't we go a little bit further in the, in, in the book. Verses 5 and 6. And now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk after His commandments. This is the commandment that, as ye have heard from the beginning, 
ye should walk in it. We now notice after highlighting the existence of the truth and encouraging her to to walk in that, he basically begins a description of that under the banner of these commandments. As we end that particular slide together, highlighting those commandments, it directly leads us, in fact, to the next one. We'll have the opportunity to see some of those features as we develop it under the heading of this slide. What about another word that John seems to use a lot? It's the word love, isn't it? We've already read several references to it, but you'll notice in verses 5 and 6 it seems to bubble to the surface. And so, let's give some thought to it. It seems again interesting to me, if you begin to count it, you find that word again occurs four times in the book. Four times in 13 verses, the word love appears. As John makes reference to that love, you'll quickly appreciate the power that he considers to be associated with it. It still is true, isn't it, that love's powerful. Verse number 5, that we love one another. Now remember, it's not as though that John and Kyrie were married to one another. They weren't. But they were brothers and sisters in Christ. And yet they were admonished to exhibit love one for another. You and I today still appreciate the thoroughness and power of love as it's found in the gospel. As you and I not only love God and love Christ, but as we love each other. You'll notice that some development perhaps along that line would be in order. The 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians is a rather amazing presentation of love, isn't it? We all remember as we arrive at the end of that chapter that now there abide us three, faith, hope, and charity, or love if you please. And the Apostle Paul was quick to say the greatest of these is charity. None of us would argue or question the significance and in fact the magnitude attached to both the things that had previously been mentioned, faith and hope. But yet, Paul was quick to remind us that of those three, the greatest, the greatest is love. I'm sure as we comment about the character of that love, maybe that takes us back to the famous words of Jesus. When He was asked what's the greatest of the commandments, He said without any hesitation... The greatest commandment, Mark 12, verse 30. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. But he was quick to go on to say the second commandment, love thy neighbor as thyself. In Matthew's rendition of those in Matthew chapter 22, he said the entire Old Testament law hangs on those two commandments. Today, when you and I give thought to, again, the statements about love, you might notice immediately some of these features. We just now noted Mark chapter 12. Prior to His own crucifixion, in fact, on that night prior to that crucifixion, Jesus, in conversation with those that were so close and dear to Him, He said, By this shall all men know that you're My disciples, if you have love one for another. There's no question that there are many things that you and I would readily associate to faithful worship and service to the God of heaven. 
But we mustn't ever lose sight of the fact from the lips of the Master himself, he asserted that love one for another would be one of the things that would rise to the surface and be a bit of a litmus test toward that very thing. Maybe one last verse in John 15, 12. Again, on that very same night prior to his crucifixion, there Jesus said, No man hath any love greater than this that he lay down his life for his brethren. Jesus did that that night, of course, or rather that next morning as he gave his life. But isn't it true that you and I are reminded that we too should have a love described in some ways as powerful and as directed as what Jesus has had for us? That kind of love leads us to note this. We know the devil, of course, has taken this concept of love and attempted to greatly expand it and move it in directions that, in fact, oppose the Word of God. For our love shouldn't be directed, of course, after the world. The same writer said that, didn't he, in 1 John 2.15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And his exposition of that was so thorough and so clear. Namely, that though we must live here in this world, we are not as Christians to be of it. That's a timeless message for us, isn't it? It seems as though John wanted Kyrie to remember things like that too. May we perhaps in passing ask, was it true that they in the first century were as tempted in materialistic ways as we are today? Were they directed in ways of falseness like we are today? It seems as though the devil hadn't come up with many things new throughout the ages. It was the same basic kinds of temptations then as now. He may have different technology through the character of the human inventions he's able to use, but it plays on the same human tendencies. It plays on the same human presuppositions here, John wanted Kyria to appreciate verse 5. A new commandment, verse number 5 it says, is not something he's giving. This is something she had already heard. Love one another. Verse number 6 goes on to say, This is love. May we never lose sight of this defining presentation of the love of God and the love that ought to be appreciated with respect to this, to this topic. It is true, isn't it, that the love of God is a three-letter phrase that's often used in our world to excuse nearly any kind of behavior because they say, well, I do love God after all, and everything's going to be all right because He'll forgive me. Well, let's let the inspired John define, so what, now what is this love? Is it some fuzzy, ethereal feeling that allows one to do whatever one may wish or please? Verse 6 still says, This is love, that we walk after His commandments. There's an inspired definition of what love entails and what it involves. And notice it is a far cry from in so many cases what many in the human family would like to assert. May we never forget this is love, that we walk after His commandments. On those occasions then when someone attempts to convince you or me that love is a much broader, a much more open matter than that, may we ask them, have you ever read or thought with some intensity about 2 John 6? This is love, that we walk after His commandments. 
It is with that in mind, might I ask you to notice that that kind of love now will lead us to have proper relationship with God, proper relationship with one another. Amazing, isn't it, how that, that topic of love brings to our mind the appreciation of this. The next topic that John develops is this one. Remember, we have so far cast a spotlight upon the truth and we've cast a spotlight upon love. But I chose a word this time that I thought was just a convenient one-letter word to describe many of these verses in the heart of the book of 2 John. As you look at the word, you'll notice now that word doesn't appear here in the actual text, but I believe we're going to find the meaning is there. Let's continue our reading in verse number 7. For many deceivers are entered into the world, who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son." If there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. There's much to be noted, of course, in that arrangement of verses, isn't there? Let's revisit and notice a few of them. We've already learned on the bedrock foundation of the existence of truth, John now moves into this appreciation, verse 7. Many deceivers are entered into the world. Kyria, John in effect says, I love you and I want you to know that your soul is so very precious to any of those that love the truth and you must be apprised of the fact that there are deceivers entered into the world. These deceivers will in fact deny certain elements of the truth which you have received and the truth which has been shared with you by faithful members of the church. To her, John thus reminded many deceivers that are entered into the world. That very observation leads us to notice that the doctrine that would be propagated by and taught by these deceivers, notice again verse 7, who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. There were individuals of the first century, a few decades following the very life of Christ in the flesh, and these denied that He had ever lived in the flesh. Now they didn't deny that perhaps He had come, but they thought He was in some kind of spiritual body. Well, may we say, John said, those who believe that... Namely, they confess not that Jesus has come in the flesh. They are deceivers. They are likened unto antichrists. And they, of course, hold to what's not true. Surely, we see very clearly in verse 7, these deceivers are entered into the world. And isn't it sad? John said there were many of them. I might suggest that's one of the saddest uses of the adjective many that I can think of anywhere in the New Testament. As John wrote this little book of 2 John, he told her, Kyria, there's not just a few of these. There are many of them. And today, of course, we still suffer beneath the existence of many who would deny certain elements of the truth, who refuse to endorse or support or cling tightly to various and sundry elements of the truth. 
many deceivers are gone into the world. What was John's very next assertion to her in verse number 8? Look to yourselves. She had a responsibility to cling tightly to the truth and to never ever compromise it. She was one who was to remain faithful and loyal to that which the truth was that had been delivered and bequeathed to her. And brethren, nothing has changed there. Oh, it's true on that day of judgment how sad and sore it might be for someone to have taught false doctrine in us to be lost, but ultimately it doesn't rest with what that person did. It rests with me and with you. Did I believe the falseness that they taught? Did I give a credence to it? Did I support and endorse it? Or did I, like John told her, look to yourselves, that you lose not those things which you've wrought, but that we receive a full reward. John encourages her to be full faithful and loyal and always true to that which is the truth you've received. And don't let these antichrists and don't let these false teachers persuade you. Aren't you and I encouraged in many ways to feel the same? To understand the necessity of adhering faithfully and strongly all throughout the days of our life in the flesh to the truth of God. Kyria heard that message loudly and clearly, didn't she? You might notice beyond that, verse number 9, John didn't finish expounding upon this point. He says, Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. There is a defined doctrine of Christ. John here referred to it. And John says, Anyone that goes beyond it, Anyone that exists in such a way they have transgressed beyond its boundaries, beyond its limits, beyond its borders. John said in verse 9, that person does not have God. And furthermore, he says, that person who abides in the doctrine of Christ hath both the Father and the Son. And isn't that delightful? And isn't that powerful? We appreciate then the powerfulness of that boundary attached to the truth. It is interesting to appreciate the language that's used, the verb that John uses in verse number 9. It says, whoever transgresseth, and that's the King James rendering. The Greek word that's there is probably one that, that you may well have noted in other usages in, in, in the Greek New Testament. The word literally means to go beyond. It really is a mental image of much like a fence. In other words, the truth has erected by the Lord Jesus Christ a fence, and within that is the truth, and within that are those who could walk in the fullness of association and faithfulness to God. On the other side of the fence, those who go onward to go beyond, who have stepped outside that boundary, he says they do not have Christ and they do not have God. That's a timeless reminder, isn't it, of the seriousness of the doctrine set before us by the inspiration of the New Testament. That inspiration, maybe you and I can appreciate at the bottom of that slide. Kyria, she was reminded of many, many things, including truth and love and now the danger of apostasy. You may notice I stopped at verse 9. There were still more things that John wished to tell her. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, 
receive him not into your house. Now, I thought Christians were to be hospitable people. I thought Christians were to be friendly and very much open in terms of expressing the fullness of love and kindness and compassion to any and every one. Apparently, John didn't know anything about that. For you'll notice here, John says, if there comes one of these individuals who holds to this doctrine that's not true, and remember, this was a day long before there were any motels or hotels like today. If there comes one of these wayfaring preachers into this area and someone who endorses this falseness, Kyria, you cannot open your doors and house them. You cannot because if you do, you're a partner to their wrongness and you're a partner to that which they've chosen to do and you can't even bid them Godspeed. Notice again the language. Receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. What those individuals were doing was reckoned and described as evil and John encouraged her, you can't be a partaker of that. That is still a reminder, isn't it, as we're about to see, that the fellowship expressed and described in the Word of God is an exceedingly powerful thing. We've already learned that there were antichrists referenced in this book, and John told her, you can't be a supporter of the antichrists. We learn from the book of 1 John that antichrists were many in that day. But as you notice here, that was an early false doctrine. And today, we notice there are many additional ones. We still must be careful not to bid God's speed to those who would not be the workers of the truth of God. We must be exceedingly cautious and not lend our support, financial or otherwise, to those who are not the faithful adherents to the doctrine of Christ. Intention was not enough. For John, it didn't matter that she may have had the best intentions. He warned her, you cannot do this. And that's still very vital for us today, isn't it? Oh, how important it is to think about some of the final comments. Her needfulness to be steadfast and true to the faith is expressed. Do you suppose that's one of the great things that John wished to share with her face to face? He didn't want to write it all with paper and pencil at this point. But he said, when I come, verse number 12, having many things to write unto you, I would not write with paper and ink, but I trust to come unto you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. John wanted to visit. The Holy Scriptures, as far as I know, don't inform us whether he was able to make that visit or not. I hope that he did. I'm sure that she and her children would have looked forward to housing him and encouraging him and supporting his efforts in the truth. Just like you and I are excited today when we can use our means to support faithful proclaimers of the truth of God. Faithful individuals who preach the Word of God in truth without compromise. As we come near the close of this book of 2 John, we've noticed many things about it and one last thing from verse 13. The children of thy elect sister greet thee. Amen. It would thus seem that Kyria had a sister who was living somewhere near where John currently was. And even those children sent greetings to Kyria. Isn't that a sweet statement to use to close the book? Tonight, as we've studied the book of 2 John, 
we perhaps can just try to rehearse and review it very briefly in a summary statement like this. We notice some general comments about the author and the person to whom the book was written. But then we began to notice as John moved through the book, he first emphasized the truth. And then he emphasized love. And he, of course, tied those together with the concept of commandment. And then he highlighted the danger of apostasy and to fall away from that truth of God. As you and I have seen all of that, how sweet it is and how blessed we are to still have the book of 2 John. What about your faithfulness and mine this evening? I hope we've each been encouraged, and that's what the Bible is so good at doing. Sometimes it does it by warning us what we mustn't do, and sometimes by encouraging us what we must do. 2 John perhaps does a little bit of both, doesn't it? Tonight there might be someone in the audience that's never become a Christian, and you'd like to enjoy the fellowship that the Bible addresses. And you want to, of course, be allied with Jesus, who is the truth of God, John 14, 6. We would be more than excited to assist you in your obedience to the gospel tonight. You must, of course, believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name as a Son of God, and be baptized. If you have begun that walk with Him, but you haven't been faithful, maybe you've allowed yourself to be persuaded by those who, in fact, don't have your eternal best interest at heart. Why not come back to your first love tonight? Just like those in Revelation 2, verses 4 and 5, you too could come back to your first love and we'd be delighted to pray to God for you. If we could help you in any of those ways tonight, this would be the perfect time to respond. And why not do it now while together we stand and while we sing?